It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame. And you got the and there's a. Now, that's a follow up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow up question right there. If you can be physical and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are. That, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold at ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. The Pot of Gold Podcast is brought to you by Zaxby's, the home of handmade-to-order chicken, salads, and more than a dozen mild-to-wild sauces. Stop by your neighborhood Zaxby's today, and tire rack the way tire buying should be. Notre Dame has unofficially made its new assistant coach hires with John McNulty for tight ends and Mike Mitkins for cornerbacks. The NFL scouting combine starts next week, and spring football will be here shortly after that. But before winter morphs into spring, we wanted to bring a national perspective to the podcast to talk some Notre Dame football. To do that, we invited Stuart Mandel, editor-in-chief of The Athletic College Football and a longtime national college football writer onto the show. Stuart, thanks for joining us. Stuart, I wanted to start with the big news of the week in college football with the NCAA's transfer waiver working group exploring the possibility of allowing a penalty-free one-time transfer in all sports. Uh, Earlier, uh, the Big Ten and the ACC have already sort of voiced their public support of this idea. Do you think it's only a matter of time until something like this happens? Yeah, certainly you've seen the momentum for this really pick up, frankly, very quickly. Uh, the idea of, of a player being able to transfer and not sit out a year was, I don't know, I think seen as kind of a, a measure of last resort as the NCAA and the various committees that studied transfers went through this the past few years. And then all of a sudden, since the new year, um, once the Big Ten put their position out there, uh, ACC followed quickly. But I do think that the you know, the, the NCAA working group chiming in with something similar was a pretty big deal. I don't know that it's inevitable because I think, you know, with any of these NCAA legislations it, it, uh, or pieces of legislation, it has to wind its way through a whole bunch of different steps. A whole lot of people get to chime in. I think we're about to, you know, we should probably um, be prepared here in the next couple months to see some pretty outspoken opposition from coaches. I mean, right now I think the people that are, expressing support are presidents and ADs and commissioners. We haven't heard from coaches yet. And other than Jim Harbaugh, I've never heard a, a major college football coach support something like this. So um, they don't necessarily have the final vote, but they can certainly express their opinion. And, um, you know, it may be like with a lot of things where this ends up at a place where you end up with um, the spirit of that proposal, but maybe with some compromises that have to be reached. Stuart, Nicole, I think it was Nicole for The Athletic did a really good job of coming up with some questions that weren't natural for a a lot of people to think about. You know, they're pretty excited about the freedom, and then all of a sudden you say, wait a second, there's all these questions to answer. One that wasn't in the article that I have for you is, do you think they're going to have to put together a transfer window? And what, what I mean by that is it would seem like kids decided to transfer in March 
uh, right after the late signing day, you really are going to have a problem, I think, with with roster management. I guess to a certain extent you might have that now with summer transfers, but do you think there – I mean, do you think that there's going to be a problem with people keeping 85 scholarship players on their roster? And that's exactly what I, what I mean when I say that there's probably going to have to, it's not going to be as simple as, okay, one time transfer exception, here we go. There's going to have to be, there's going to be a lot of things to consider, and that's a great, you know, that's a great idea to bring up. I don't think you can limit when, uh, I mean, guys are going to transfer year round. We've seen recently guys transfer, you know, after four games when they get, you know, in the yeah. middle of the season when they have to decide whether to keep that red shirt or not. So I don't think you can really change when they transfer, but can you change, can you, set a period much like how there's a period when recruits can sign of when guys can take that exception uh, you can transfer whenever you want but if you want to be able to play right away yeah. then it's got to be during this period and then of course the coaches are going to want that to happen before signing day so they know exactly what they're dealing with you know i wrote in in my mailbag on wednesday that if they're going to do this they're going to also have to seriously look at the 25 scholarship limit um Maybe they want to keep it as is, but at the end of the day, those 25, you know, you can't take 15 transfers because you're limited to 25 scholarships per year for recruits and transfers. Uh, some coaches have complained that it makes it harder for them to replace the guys that go into the portal and that they should loosen that. And that's a perfectly legit case. But the counter of that would be, um, if I suddenly have the ability to basically recruit any player in the country to come in and help my team next year, you might see them start running off kids uh, and say, hey, I'm going to use my 25 scholarships more for that uh, than I am for the high school kids. So I, I don't think this is going to be simple. There's definitely a lot of other factors that have to be, uh, that have to be brought up as well. Stuart, given that this doesn't seem to be necessarily a coach-driven concept, do you think this is at all related to maybe the NCAA wanting to gain some some good publicity and maybe give ground in the in this aspect when they're when when there's so much public pressure talking about student athletes making money from their name image and likeness and paying athletes and that kind of stuff yeah i mean i think right now they're under a lot of pressure to show that they do care about the athletes they're still going to have to address nil i mean transfers is not going to end that conversation um i do think that it's not a coincidence on the timing but really this all boils down to and this was this was self-inflicted. They came up with this waiver process a couple years ago, and it just they just lost complete control of it. It came down to who hires the best lawyer and uh, uh, who writes the best cover letter, if you will. <laughs> and I think people last year in particular got really frustrated. You saw, I mean, certainly the most visible was Justin Fields at Ohio State, but also Kate Martell, uh, guys who got. Um, got their waivers granted for not necessarily obvious reasons. And then you had other kids who had wanted to be close, uh, closer to home to a family member who was sick or dying. And, oh, sorry, you're five miles outside the radius. Um, and then just the number of kids making these requests has become untenable. So as much as we'd like to think, oh, there's been a, uh, you know, a, a, a moment in time when suddenly people realize that they should be uh, looking out for the players more. This is really just a response to that, that this is, that's become unmanageable, that waiver process. And they have to, uh, you know, it'd be easier to just say, okay, everybody gets one. 
Stuart, I wonder how you think this will play at Notre Dame, a school that doesn't take very many grad transfers and takes even fewer regular transfers. They've only had three in the past several decades of just regular scholarship-to-scholarship transfers. Um, Do you think that Notre Dame is going to have to look at those a little bit harder just to keep pace with roster management? Yeah, I mean, I think that everybody over the last couple of years or whatever their philosophy was about transfers before has had to change that um, because of the impact of the transfer portal. Uh, Now I think that if it does become a situation, if it becomes just total free agency, and you know we don't know yet whether that'll be the case, um, and and you see uh, teams that want to be playoff contenders going out and saying, uh, all right, well we 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 uh, lost a couple defensive backs to the draft. Who are the top five defensive backs, maybe in the group of five, who we could go coach? Then if Notre Dame doesn't play that game, they're going to fall behind. Um, you know, I think as the as the rules change, you have to adapt with it. Stuart, we're nearing the end of the coaching carousel in college football, though it has been quite a bit elongated uh, this offseason. Uh, Notre Dame had some in-staff coaching changes with Tommy Reese being promoted to offensive coordinator, and as I mentioned earlier, John McNulty as the tight ends coach and Mike Mickens as the cornerbacks coach. Let's start with, with Tommy Reese. What is your perspective of that move uh, to him as offensive coordinator taking over the play-calling responsibilities, and um, do, is there a reason for concern that, that Notre Dame sort of promoted within and, and hired such a young guy as the offensive coordinator when they're in such a strong position as a, as a program? Obviously, there's no way to predict how somebody who's never been an offensive coordinator, of course, going to perform. Uh, but I don't. If, if Notre Dame's offense were really struggling, then you would maybe that would be a question of why you promoted from within. But that's really not the case here. Obviously, this is an unusual situation where they parted ways with an OC who's actually been quite successful. And um, you know, I think that it seems like um, Tommy Reese has been groomed for this for a few years now. Brian Kelly expressed total confidence in him. Obviously, got to get some experience in the bowl game. So I'm excited for it. I'm excited to see what he can do. Um, I don't think there's really any reason for concern, I think. Uh, I know from, from the questions I've been getting my mailbag recently that Notre Dame, actually it was a, a story I did ranking, uh, no, it was a mailbag question where I answered about like impact coordinators. And I wasn't that I, you know, it wasn't that I downgraded the hire. I just didn't mention him. And I, and I heard it from Notre Dame fans. So I know they're very excited about this. How about um, John McNulty and Mike Mickens? You know, we know a lot more about Mike Mickens' track record in college. John McNulty, mostly a pro guy who had a couple runs at Rutgers and was at UConn back when they were a 1AA team under uh, Skip Holtz. I'm wondering if you have any impressions of those two guys. I don't have much familiarity with McNulty, to be perfectly honest, um, but it seems like he has a good – uh, background. Um, I thought the Mike McIntyre was really good. I think he will help them uh, in recruiting in particular. Uh, you know, his background is in college, and certainly if you look at Cincinnati the last couple of years under Luke Fickle, um, they played great defense. They had great DVs. He was obviously clearly a part of that. So, you know, that um, Brian Kelly obviously tapping into his former employer there, um, I think that that could be a promising hire. Stuart, one of the things I, I dislike about this time of year is that everyone wants to know what we think of these hires. And it's like you mentioned earlier, it's it's, it's almost hard to predict, like with Tommy Reese, if he's going to be a good offensive coordinator or not. What 
and I imagine as a national college football writer, you're asked for even more of those opinions on on coaching hires all across the country that you may have uh, not a ton of familiarity with. How, what are, you're right. What's what's the process you go through to to sort of evaluate these coaching hires, and and do you ever feel uh, like you're you, you don't know for sure, and you just it's more of a guessing game than anything? Well, from a from a national perspective, you know, it's different if you're covering one team, and obviously. You know, there's a lot of interest across the board in that staff. I don't really get too much attention beyond the um, coordinator level, and except for the impact on recruiting. Um, it's not that position coaches are necessarily interchangeable. I don't want to devalue uh, the, the work that those guys do, but it's very rare that, that you know, whether, there's exception. There's a Larry Johnson who's, you know, phenomenal defensive line coach mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, uh, uh, and a few others like that, but for the most part, it's it's hard to say. Oh, this guy is a fantastic cornerbacks coach. Where you really see the impact, obviously, of those maybe lower level assistants is in recruiting. You often see a guy get hired, and and he has familiarity with a certain part of the country, let's say Florida, and all of a sudden in the next recruiting class they sign a bunch of guys from Florida. That's where you can really see that uh, direct impact. But um, there's certainly there's some very notable OC hires around the country this year. I mean, frankly. A lot of the top teams, a lot of the top playoff contenders, um, you know, I think uh, whether it's Joe Moorhead going to Oregon, obviously that's a very intriguing one, LSU bringing in Bo Pelini. I mean, these are guys we know who have been former head coaches who have track record. Um, that's a lot different to me than trying to analyze a, a certain team bringing in a certain uh, position coach. Stuart, I'm going to ask kind of an offbeat question about the assistance. Notre Dame suddenly is a program that has really limited their access to the media. Um, we do not get to meet Mike Mickens or John McNulty, certainly this spring, maybe not until August, and even then I think it's going to be 10 minutes, and then that's all the exposure we'll have to them for the season. And even the coordinators, there's been a real rolling back in terms of uh, exposure to them, and yet they're really well-spoken people, um, cast a very interesting light on the program. Is, is there, For us, there's a huge disadvantage in that. I'm, I'm wondering from a coaching standpoint if you can understand why programs would roll back that access that they wouldn't want to expose assistants who are you know, good enough to be out on the road recruiting and talking to kids. Unfortunately, it's become the norm. Um, many, you know, I would say the, at this point, the large majority of programs operate more like that, um, than are wide open. And I know that the stated reason, whether it was Nick Saban, who kind of started this trend or others, is the idea that the head, they want the head coach to be the only voice. Um, but I've yet to see anybody show me a study or something that proves that the less accessible the assistants are, the more success you're going to have on the football field. Um, and, and the poster for that is constant. They're about as wide open as it gets. Um, those coordinators talk every week. The position coaches are available fairly regularly. You can watch practice uh, at least some of the time, which is also increasingly rare. And they're only one of the you know two most dominant programs in the country right now. So, uh, And I'm not sure, you know, you guys would know, I'm not sure why that Notre Dame suddenly heading in that direction. Brian Kelly has always struck me as a pretty media-friendly coach. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it makes our jobs a lot harder. The fans don't sympathize, obviously. They don't care uh, whatever the coach says. 
they're gonna they're gonna support. Um, but at the end of the day, they're the ones who lose out on this. You know, certainly at the athletics, we're all about great storytelling, and it's hard to tell great stories without being able to talk to the people within the program. So it just limits the stories you can tell, and I think hurts the fans who don't get to learn as much about their favorite coaches and their favorite players. You're listening to the Pot of Gold podcast presented by Zaxby's. Before we hear more from Stuart Mandel, let's take a short break. We know you like football. So do we. We're TireRack.com, and this is our version of a two-minute drill, except it's only 30 seconds. TireRack.com has an enormous selection of tires. Not sure which ones to buy? Use our tire decision guide to find the right tires for your vehicle and the way you drive. Then get them shipped fast and free on all orders over $50. Shipping is in as little as one day. Free. TireRack.com ships to independent, recommended installers. TireRack.com, the way tire buying should be. Touchdown! Stuart, as a listener to the Audible, uh, your podcast with Bruce Feldman, I took note of a recent discussion you guys had about Notre Dame's chances of winning a national championship in the next decade. Um, It's actually a question that Eric frequently asks uh, guests of our podcast. So what do you think is hurting Notre Dame's chances of winning a title? Well, before I get to Notre Dame specifically, I mean, I think a point I've made many times recently, people might not like to hear it, is that pool of programs capable of winning a national championship in the playoff era is shrinking, not expanding, um, just in terms of the programs that recruit enough elite talent to have the wells and wells of money uh, and are capable of winning not one but two straight games against those you know most talented teams in the country. And I think it's a pretty small pool at this point. Notre Dame has obviously shown that they can compete at a very high level. Um, they recruit a lot of those great players. They have yet to show, obviously, on the field that they can be on the same level uh, as an Alabama or a Clemson. But more than that, I just think, uh, for all the reasons you guys know well about why Notre Dame is unique um, as a school, uh, certainly being an independent, just makes it that much harder. Um, they don't play the uh, annual November FCS game uh, that, that helps, certainly, the SEC and some of the ACC teams stay rested at the end of the season. They choose to travel all over the country throughout the season, um, which obviously makes it harder as well. Uh, and then, you know, just the academic ish, um, the academic standard, um, there's always going to be certain kids they can't recruit, but do the playoff contenders can. So that's not to say they can't be uh, in the mix uh, on a regular basis, but, you know, the, the program I kind of use as a uh, maybe comparable one here is Wisconsin. Wisconsin almost every year is in the mix to win the Big Ten, reach the playoff, but you get to see them find that final rung. Uh, and, and I think that Notre Dame probably recruits more high-end talent than Wisconsin does, um, but they don't necessarily – their 2 deep is not necessarily as looted uh, top to bottom as Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Ohio State. Stuart, uh, Brian Kelly mentioned, uh, and Pete and Matt might have mentioned this, to you uh, that right before the Camping World Bowl, kind of to a random question, he he goes off and says, you know what, we're going to try to upgrade our recruiting from being a top 10 to 15 recruiting program to being a top five recruiting program. Again, do you think that's realistic that he can do that? I did see those comments. Uh, Pete has written about it quite a bit. Um, I'm interested to see, you know, he alluded to there being some, some big changes they're making to accomplish that. I'd, I'd be very, um, 
I'm very intrigued to see what those are and how they can do that. I don't think it's impossible uh, to at least do that some, you know, some of the time. I don't know that it can be annual top five. Um, but again, the programs that are doing that every year, um, with the exception of Ohio State, they're almost entirely in the South, and that's where the talent is. That's where, I mean, it's not a coincidence that those programs show up in the top five, top ten every year. That's where uh, you know the, the highest concentration of elite recruits are, are in the South. Ohio State's one of the rare programs that has been able to uh, to go beyond their geographic uh I mean, there are some obviously some great players in Ohio, but certainly under Urban Meyer, they expanded their reach much more nationally. And Notre Dame doesn't have a choice. Obviously, every year they're going to have to recruit nationally. So um, I, I think uh, so, you know, the casual fan who, who can't stand Notre Dame or, or thinks they sick of seeing them get blown out, blah, 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 probably oversimplifies it, thinks that they don't have any great players. They have a lot of great players. It's like I said before. And you recruit those those classes one through twenty five that are so stacked that you can afford for I don't know five eight of those guys to turn out to be complete bust, and you still have a two D full future NFL players. Stuart, you mentioned that the the list is getting smaller in terms of a number of programs that can realistically win a national championship. Can you ballpark how long you think that list is right now? Um, yeah, I think it's maybe a dozen or less. And some of them aren't even remotely close right now, but they have the pieces in place. Texas is obviously a program that, mm-hmm. with the right coach, can win a national championship. They haven't come close to that in the last decade, which got to have the right coach. Same with uh, USC. Um, uh, I think that you know the Florida schools obviously are in a great position to do that, even if a couple of them aren't particularly close right now. Uh, a bunch of schools in the SEC. Ohio State's one of them, obviously. Um, and maybe I'll be proven wrong by somebody like an Oregon who I don't have on that list. Uh, but, but I think it's shrinking. And the funny thing is, you know, a lot of people want to expand the playoff to eight and that's fine. And I think that, uh, that would get more, for instance, the Pac-12, which doesn't really feel like they're playing the same sport right now. <laughs> you know, that would guarantee that a Pac-12 team would be part of that, the big event in December. But it's not going to, you know, the more teams you throw in that bracket is not going to, um, cause there to be more uh, a longer list of schools that win the national championship i think the same ones will still be standing at the end of the day i wanted to ask you about ian book um you know last year the four teams in the playoff were one two three and eight with their pass efficiency rating from their quarterback and ian was at 24 and that was with some big improvement in november i'm wondering do you think he's capable of being a top 10 type quarterback. Yeah, I do. Uh, if you remember last season, he started off slow. People were wondering what was wrong. And then over the second half of the season, he played very well. Uh, he's one of the main reasons to be uh, very optimistic about Notre Dame going into next season. When he announced he was coming back, I knew that I was going to have them uh, as a top 10 team in my early top 25. Um, I think, uh, now he can't do it alone, and you know one of the big um, you know things we've got to see next year is who's going to emerge as the next set of receivers for Notre Dame. If you look at the teams that were in the playoffs, certainly the team that won the national championship, it wasn't just that they had a great quarterback. LSU has three receivers who are all going to play on Sundays uh, and be drafted very high. Clemson 
you know, obviously T. Higgins, Justin Ross, Alabama has five of those guys or had five of those guys last year. Um, I think that's the area where Notre Dame probably lags behind a little bit. And um, I'm very interested to see who that next wave of playmakers will be. Stuart, um, Tyler and I are both subscribers to The Athletic. We've really enjoyed what The Athletic has brought to the table. I'm wondering if you can kind of tell us how the business model is progressing and the growth of The Athletic, where it's going. Uh, the, the growth has been just staggering, to be, to be perfectly honest. I joined the company in uh, August or, or July of 2017 when it was still relatively small. And, uh, you know, I, I, the founders, Alex and Adam, threw out all these projections, and I thought, okay, yeah, that's good. You're optimistic, but that seems pretty unattainable, and, and they've actually shattered all those numbers. Um, you know, I think it's been very encouraging. It's, we've, we've helped disprove any notion that people won't pay for sports content. Actually, they, they, uh, they're happy to pay for a product that they think is really good, uh, not just the writing. The writing is obviously the key part of it, but just the overall product, the app, um, the lack of ads, the lack of pop-up videos. Um, you know, people are really enjoying it. And that's, I mean, I think people always ask me about subscriptions, and I say, well, there's a lot of subscribers, and that's great. But the most important thing is that they're coming back. They're, re- they're renewing every year. Um, so from that standpoint, you know, it's doing very well. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people when we were first starting out were, were skeptical that this would work. Um, and I think uh, at this point that's been disproven. And now it's just, uh, you know, it's going to be exciting to see just how far it can grow. And I wanted to ask you about podcasts because they've. it seems like there's more and more, and I've enjoyed – the Shamrock, which is the one with Pete Sampson, Matt Fortuna. Where can people um, hear the Shamrock? How how does how do they go about listening to that? And then also, what do you like about that particular podcast? Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you for, for letting us plug another uh, Notre Dame podcast. Um, the Shamrock, first of all, it's one of our absolutely most successful ones uh, in terms of listeners. It's available, you know, wherever you get this podcast, you can get that podcast, these Apple podcasts. Google Play, Spotify, um, all those places. We experimented this past, this was the past season was the first one with podcasts with The Athletic, and we experimented a little bit with putting some of them behind the paywall, and I think we've come to realize that people want to hear all their podcasts in the same place. They don't want to have to go digging for certain episodes. So going forward, all their um, all their shows will be free and available wherever podcasts are. And when you ask me what I like about it, I mean, those two guys, you know them well. Uh, yeah. They know Robert and Cole. They have great chemistry. I the only my only um, regret is that, and I hope I'm not outing something here, but <laughs> the original working title for that podcast was, uh, I think I'm going to botch it now. Two, it was Domes on Domers. Both those guys. <laughs> I really think they should have gone with that. They ended up changing it up at the last second. Um, but, you know, it's a really enjoyable podcast. You'll learn a lot about – you'll get a lot of great insight into Notre Dame from their show. And for anyone who doesn't know what Pete Sampson and Matt Fortuna look like, they both are bald, so that's why the name would be so funny. All right, all right, uh, Stuart, we appreciate you taking time to talk to us and sharing your insight with us today. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Pot of Gold Podcast presented by Zaxby's. Now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the Degenerates with the NFL Scouting Combine starting next week. It's time for some testing predictions, Eric. 
Um, first, to be clear, when we talk about times, over is slower, under is faster, just in case anyone at home is confused. Okay. Or, um, but for the first one I have for us, over under 4.33 seconds in the 40 for Troy Pride Jr. I'm going to go under. And the fastest by a Notre Dame player since 2010 is Will Fuller at 4.32. There's not anybody been super close to that. But the thing is, Troy Pride was a track guy and is a track guy. And I think just his advantage in knowing how to come out of the blocks mm-hmm. is going to make that slight little difference that's going to get him under that 4-3-3 threshold. I'm going to go under as well because I, I don't want to doubt Troy Pride. He seems very confident in his ability to do that. Yeah. But I still want to see it because I, I, I'm still a little bit skeptical, but I, I still will go under, and I think he can do that. Um, and he, he seems to be very confident that he can. He's aiming to try and get into the four twos. Um, so we'll see if he can do that. But that will be one of the highlights of the combine, in, in my opinion, being able to watch Troy Pride Jr. run the 40. Next question is over under 10 foot 6 inches in the broad jump for Chase Claypool. Well, 10.6, I think, would have been eighth place in last year's combine among wide receivers. Miles Boykin did 11.8. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's some years 10.6 is a little bit better than eighth place. There's some years that it's been lower than that. Will Fuller did a 10.6. Um, I think because it's a standing broad jump and it's not the run get a get some momentum and so forth yeah i think being with long legs and so forth is going to help claypool clear that so i'm going over 10 six yeah i really had no idea where to like sort of put this put this number um because we've never asked chase claypool about his broad jump but um i I will go over as well because miles did so well and because I, i i just believe that matt bayless does a good job of preparing these guys and getting them um into good good position to be perform well at the combine after they go off and work with their own trainers. Um, so I will go over for, for Chase Claypool jumping over 10-6 in the broad jump. Next one, over under four and a, or 4.5 seconds in the 40 for Chris Fink. Well, it better be under because he's not big enough to run 4-5 and have anybody looking at him. And I think he got his invite on the premise that he would run under 4-5. And just from what we've seen him run – in practice, when he's healthy, he looks really fast. So I'm going to say slightly under. I'm going to go over. Um, I don't know that it's going to be much more over that. I think he might be right there on the line. Um, so I, I, I'm curious. I mean, he. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he comes in at a four four nine or something like that. Um, but I will go over. I just. Um, I think Chris Fink is very quick, and I think he's pretty fast. But I'm not quite sure that he's four four fast, and so I want to see if he's able to do that. Next one, faster 20-yard shuttle, Jalen Elliott or Alohi Gilman? 20-yard shuttle is supposed to measure your lateral movement, your sudden movement, and I think that Elliott would be better at that, a little bit better, because he's a guy that the senior bowl people think that he could play cornerback. He was considered um, a backup nickelback for Notre Dame, which – really requires you to be able to cut at full speed Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna go elliot i'm gonna go alohi here i i think i think i don't know that i would say that alohi could play cornerback but i think he was very good in coverage and and um, when when asked to do things like that was able to kind of mirror um wide receivers and slot receivers or tight ends uh in doing that so i I think 
Um, this might be an area where Alohi can beat Jalen Elliott athletically, so I will go with Alohi. Next one, over under 4.65 in the 40 for Tony Jones Jr. You know, this one's difficult. I, I, I'm going with maybe rooting for him instead of reality. <laughs> so I'm going to say under, but I would not surprise me if it's if it's higher than that. Yeah, so here's the thing. I think when you see 465, you're like, "Wow, that's not fast." Yeah. Um and it's not it's not fast, but it's not that slow for running backs. Uh David Montgomery, who was drafted by the Chicago Bears last year, ran a 463. Uh, he rushed for over 800 yards last season as a as a rookie. Devin Singletary, who was drafted by the Buffalo Bills and rushed for over 700 yards as a rookie, ran a 4.66. Um, so to think that Tony Jones Jr. is faster than those guys, I'm not sure that he is. So I'm going to go over, but and it sounds like it's a dig at Tony Jones Jr., but I don't think it is. I think you can be that speed and be successful NFL running backs. And I think. Well, and he's big. Yeah, I mean, and Tony's, Tony's big. big. And I think certainly we question his speed that's one of the biggest questions that people had about him as a running back but, <laughs> and, and he uh won't be able to stiff arm anyone at the end of his 40 <laughs> like he did in the camping world bowl um, did you ever see the broadcast uh i don't like i don't remember is anyone going to be able to catch him and i go <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, that's funny uh so i will go over I, i'm curious to see how he does and uh we will see um if he can beat four six five and um because certainly a good 40 time would do a lot for tony jones jr because i do think there are some question marks about him and um i don't even know that we would have necessarily felt really confident that he was going to be invited to the combine so um, he has a chance to prove himself uh, last one is more bench press reps, Khaled Kareem or Cole Komet. I'm going to give Kareem the slight advantage here, partly because Cole broke his collarbone sure. in August last year, so he wasn't benching in August and maybe not even through the season. Yeah, I mean, he had elbow injury before that, yeah. so I don't know how much bench pressing he was doing before Kareem that. Kareem has been injured, but it's always been lower <laughs> yeah, body. Yeah, always ankles, yeah. So I think his bench press is probably in a good spot. Yeah, and certainly this does leave the opportunity of if they if they just don't do it because some guys opt to not do these things at a certain events at the at the bench. So I think that's the best chance Cole has maybe of beating Kareem if if Cole decides to do it and Khaled doesn't. Uh, but I I think Kareem should be able to bench more um, than Cole Komet. But we'll see if uh, Cole can prove us wrong. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys are, are we done with USC? Everybody's done. you guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First one we have, um, sort of a two-parter, uh, for, uh, kind of combining two, two questions um, from two different people, from Baba Ganoush at PLACT underscore ITFDB. Um, I read where ND may be in play to land Trevor Spates as another grad transfer. Hard to tell if he'd be an upgrade at running back, but could it be more insurance against Chris Tyree not being ready as a true freshman? And also Hurley Fever at Hurley Fever asked, why is ND pursuing a grad transfer running back who for his career is averaging 3.8 yards per carry? Well, I think there's a couple different answers to the two different questions. Um, Lance Taylor recruited Trevor to – uh, Stanford right um, he had about 10 offers and there was a real mix there was you know kind of like the Arizonas and there was also Tennessee mm -hmm. there was some decent S uh, SEC schools like Texas A&M I think okay uh, but 
there were some Texas San Antonio and Texas State. So it was all over the place. He was a really productive high school back, I think fourth leading rusher in Texas history when he graduated. Um, now, why does that make sense at Notre Dame, though, just given the numbers that you have? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's so much about Chris Tyree, whether he's ready or not. Agreed. I think it's more about are you sure that Jafar Armstrong can stay healthy? He's had two seasons now where he's been injured a lot of his games. And then you kind of look at the other people on the roster and you wonder if there's a health concern beyond that. You may need to move Avery Davis to another position at some point. Uh, but it did surprise me that they looked at it. But if if Lance Taylor was sold on him, you know, maybe there's something there. Maybe he could be a lot more than what he was at Stanford. Yeah, uh, credit to Tom Loy of Irish Illustrated being the first one to report that Notre Dame was pursuing uh, Trevor Spates as a potential grad transfer. Um, I, I still think I want to find out more information about why Notre Dame is interested and how interested they are is it something that they feel like okay if, if trevor wants to come here let's let's make it happen or if it's something that they're still in the early process of in terms of figuring out his fit here um, and notre dame's need for another running back so um, i think there's still questions to be answered when it comes to that um, tom lloyd had reported that he could potentially visit in march um, so we will see how that that plays out um, but yeah I, I mean lance taylor should know just about as much as trevor as anyone um, he had been very productive at Stanford, rushed 95 times for 363 yards in the two seasons that he's played. He didn't play as a freshman, and he didn't play last year as a senior. Um, I believe he was out with some injury issues this past season. Um, so we will see. I imagine they would like to know how healthy he is, too, because Notre Dame hasn't had great luck with some of the grad transfers that they've brought in with injury histories and those guys continuing to to have some injury problems. So I think that's something that Notre Dame would need to address as well. Next question is from Chris Scheiber at Scheib43. It seems the coaching staff sees Jafar Armstrong as CJ Pro Size. I see him as a slot because he just hasn't seemed to develop the running back instincts. Maybe it was the injuries last year, but Smith and Flemister are much better running backs, not athletes. Please discuss why I'm correct with the laughing emoji. So do you agree that Jafar Armstrong is, is more of a slot than a running back? Or what do you think is well, well I think that features. the beauty of moving him to running back was that you could have him be kind of both. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, a chip long thing. And I, I don't know that Reese, Tommy Reese, would necessarily disagree with that. You know, it gives you some formational flexibility right. when you can line him up behind. Ian Book in the pistol and then change the formation and line him up wide and maybe get a mismatch there. I mean, he didn't look like the same guy when he came back from injury. He looked kind of tentative to me. And I thought in August he looked really good. So I'm probably not going to side with you. I look at Notre Dame's slot receiver options and Lawrence Keyes the third would be the number one guy there. And I think they're pretty excited about him. I know that Brian Kelly was uh, pretty excited about Kendall Abdur Rahman Rahman when he came in initially and then he got hurt. And then he possibly could throw Xavier Watts in there. I think he could even play Brayden Lindsey in the slot at times, too. And so 
It's not like you're kind of hurting for – you need running backs more. Obviously, if they're shopping <laughs> the grad transfer market, you right. need running backs more. I mean, I talked to a Jafar in August, and he had studied and, and learned a lot more about the instinct part of mm-hmm. being a running back. I just think it's a health thing with him. Yeah, I, I agree. And to me, I, nothing – even though this last season didn't go well for Jafar Armstrong – it didn't change my opinion of what he can be. I still think he can be as good as I thought he was. I'm just less certain that he will be just because of the injury issues. So, yeah, to me, I'm more concerned about Jafar being able to withstand the 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 physicality required to play running back rather than his ability to be a running back. Um, now maybe if they feel like we have better running backs and if – Jafar Armstrong is going to be able to stay on the field more if we can play him at slot rather than running back. Maybe that's something that Notre Dame decides to do. But I, I'm not ready to give up on Jafar Armstrong at running back, and um, a, a lot of that has to do with Notre Dame's slot options. I think um, some of the things that Jafar can do out of the slot, which would also include carrying the ball, I think Lawrence Keyes can do that, Braden Lindsey can do that. Um, so I, I think that, um, and even Avery Davis is a guy that they they've liked to use in those situations at times too. So I, I don't know that there's a huge need for him at slot um as opposed to running back but it it certainly seems like maybe that is a potential um, concern of why maybe they are continuing to look at a potential grad transfer running back our next question is from frank sarah at frank sarah three who are the players that will miss spring practice due to injuries well i'd feel more comfortable if we had a chance to talk to brian (laughs) Brian kelly Kelly about the camping world bowl yeah um (laughs) that's what makes it difficult I mean, we know that Shane Simon and Jack Lamb were two guys that were going to be limited to just non-contact periods. Sure. Um, and then there's a bunch of other guys that Hainsey I guess – Hainsey and Kramer were, yeah. probably aren't going to be going Hainsey, through full Kramer, contact stuff. I, I think maybe Dirksen got injured at some point. Cam Mabry but, or um, – Cole Mabry. Cole Mabry, but I'm not sure to what extent. I don't know – whether Quinn Carroll has been cleared yet from oh, right. his injury. Yeah, he was coming back so there are a bunch of offensive linemen. Cam Hart had a um, shoulder, had a uh, – Labrum surgery. Yep. Labrum surgery. Uh, Jay Brunel, we found out from Carter Carls that the incoming early wide receiver, freshman, early yeah. enrollee, he's not going to likely have contact. And Dalen Hayes had a little labrum surgery earlier than exactly. Cam Hart, so I don't know what his status will be. There's lots of guys we those, have questions those about. Those are all guys that I had on my <laughs> list as, these are the people I'm going to ask about. Sure, Frank, and then so. I was told recently by someone on our staff that he spotted Aaron Banks walking around on a in a boot um, when he was uh, on campus at some point. So um, curious to see if he had some sort of setback. Certainly Aaron didn't have – um, as good of a season as many of us suspected, so maybe he was continuing to deal with a, a foot injury there that he uh, had, I believe, had surgery on uh, last off season too. So, um, lots of guys we don't necessarily have answers on, and we hope to um, get answers on them soon because Notre Dame will be starting up spring practice here as soon as uh, the end of the first week in March. Next question is from Josh Melton at Joshua Melton. Do you think the offensive line will make a jump next season, particularly in run blocking? And also, any insight on whether the reoccurrence of Aaron Banks' foot injury would derail any potential progress? I will have a better answer after I talk to Brian Kelly to ask him some questions about the offensive line mm-hmm. that I want very specific answers to. I'm actually working on a story 
that I plan to run the week that spring practice starts. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with Tommy Reese, Lance Taylor, and how they get on with Jeff Quinn. I think some of the problems were probably at Jeff Quinn, Chip Long, not communicating well, not getting along well philosophically. And it seems like if you're going to promote Lance Taylor to run game coordinator, maybe this frees up Jeff Quinn to be a little bit more technique-driven in his coaching, that he's not having to to be as concerned with the scheme. Um, I, I certainly think the material's there. And was there a question about Banks in there too? Yeah, he asked if okay. if Banks does have a, has and, a foot injury again. And if that Banks does have a foot injury, progress? I think right now Lug Josh Lug is playing as well as Aaron Banks. Mm-hmm. I think Aaron Banks higher ceiling player, right? But he hadn't gotten there, and I think some of that's the technique. But I think that these guys are hungry to be pushed, especially with their technique and being exacting with it. And so I think you have the right attitude and the right culture, and I think you have enough talent to be better. Yeah, we're not going to get any concrete answers on if Notre Dame's going to be able to run the ball better in spring because they have those guys that could potentially be out. Right. Um, and so we're not going to see that them even working as a unit necessarily, let alone what that improvement means and what they're doing better and, and what that would look in an actual football setting. Um, so I, I think that – um, it's all theoretical at this point, and I don't know that we're going to be – I think even even in my mind in camp and stuff, I don't know that we really get a great feel of how well the running game is working. Um, because they're not they're taking not, running backs to the ground. Right, yeah. yeah. It's, it's not that, that is the thing they do the least live is, is full contact running, tackling. Um, certainly the, the offensive line and defensive line and linebackers are going pretty, pretty full go in terms of blocking and, and destroying blocks, but um, – it's going to be – I don't know that anyone's going to feel terribly confident in the answer one way or the other until they start playing games in September so or even late August in in, in Ireland. So um, I think it's, it's sort of a wait and see. I think it, it makes sense that they're in a situation where they can improve, um, but it's, it's something that I think we have to just kind of let it be proven to us before we get too far out in front of it. Next question is from Patrick H15 at Patrick H79. So two different numbers there. It seems that Jordan Botello is projected as a defensive end. Any chance for an inside linebacker look now or in the future? Not sure if there's a physical compar- comparison, but Prince Shembo was an inside linebacker in the NFL for a brief time. Just a fun thought, Patrick says. I think it's a fun thought um, because he's such an intense player and he was a Buckkiss Award finalist as a linebacker. Um, rivals in 24 seven sports kept him as an inside linebacker yeah. in their rankings. But I mean, he's clear on what he wants to do as far as being a defensive end. Notre Dame's clear on where they project him. Notre Dame has enough inside linebacker candidates. <laughs> yeah. And I think you want to get him into the mix at, at, at defensive end, not so much for this year, but when Dalen Hayes and Adi Ogundeji aren't on the team anymore, you know he's going to be ready to team with Isaiah Foskey right. and Ovi Agofu. And, and Notre Dame has this really good system now, being able to develop players kind of at a at their pace. Right. 
And so I think just get him ready to be who he's going to be. Yeah, I think the rotation that Notre Dame has on just def- its defensive line really benefits the younger players when they get chances to get out there and get their feet wet a little bit. And so I think that'll be the situation where jo- Jordan Botello is set up to potentially succeed. And I think he has a bright future at defensive end. So I, I'm not looking for him to move to out inside linebacker. Certainly, I don't know that you could take that off the table, but I imagine they're if they're committed to him be, being defensive end, they're going to try and get him a little bit bigger, and then I think you'll want him to stay at defensive end rather than to move backwards. So um, I think defensive end is, is where his future will be at Notre Dame. Seth Turner at Seth or at S. Turner 86, he says, I read a report, Rivals, I believe, that had Ian Book as the 33rd best quarterback in the country. Thoughts? Um, my thoughts are... I think that might have come from Pro Football Focus's okay. I didn't, uh, I didn't evaluations. Look it up to see where it came. Well, from. I, I mean, I remember right, yeah, where looking at their slotted. rankings and thinking, boy, they had him low, and they said he was the one time I kind of <laughs> wanted to call them on something. <laughs> yeah, they complimented him in when they wrote yeah. about him, but they also ranked him thirty third so. and, and dropped him. Yeah, he, he was going down. Um, I, I mean, he was twenty fourth in the country in passing efficiency. And he was a better than average runner, so I think thirty third is too low. Um, I, I can understand early in the season why there were some concerns about him because his pocket presence wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. He's been a very different quarterback depending on the competition in terms of what his stats look like. Uh, so, but I think even considering all that, to not have him as a top. 20 quarterback I think is is kind of a mistake yeah I I think he's a top 20 quarterback would be where I would feel comfortable in putting him now it's certainly towards the end of that 20 but um, I I think that um, he did make some improvements and certainly the competition had played a factor in that but I think he did figure out things I think it's funny because in the middle of the season it seemed like people were getting on Ian Book for not throwing it to Chase Claypool enough or not throwing it to Cole Komet enough and then he decided, or he started doing that, especially in the Iowa State game. He was all over throwing to Chase Claypool, um, and Chase Claypool has had successful Novembers, and that continued this past season. And now it's like, well, what's he going to do now that he can't throw to Chase Claypool? It's like, well, that's what you wanted him to do, and now you're you're holding it against him that that's what he did. So I, I think Ian has developed as a quarterback. I think he will continue to develop as a quarterback under Tommy Reese, and I think Tommy Reese being the offensive coordinator should be- benefit Ian Book. They have a great relationship. Um, so I think that um, Ian will um, be able to continue to improve this year, and maybe that'll be more uh, evident at the beginning of the season rather than in the in the in the latter end of the season, like it was this past year. Um, but I, I do think that he's probably higher than or better than the the thirty third best quarterback in the country. Next question is from Derek Gerber at Gerbs Irish zero two. Any idea on what recruits could be committing in the near future? Well, there is a big recruiting weekend, March 20th through 22nd, and a lot of those guys are going to be top offensive linemen. And we had Carter Carls on weekday sports beat kind of going through that list. And there's a dude named Rocco, I know. (laughs) Rocco Spindler, I think is his name. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I think one or more of those guys could commit that weekend just because there's going to be – uh, emphasis on them and kind of a push so that would be where my prediction but I can't 
Yeah, I raised two 17-year-olds, and I can't predict them well. <laughs> we feel confident enough that no one's going to commit immediately because we let Carter go to Dubai. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, but we do think that uh, March would be that next next spot. February this year is actually almost con- completely a dead period, um, so Notre Dame won't be able to host recruits until March. Um, and, and when Notre Dame has those guys coming on campus, that would be the m- next – uh, chance and most likely chance for guys to end up committing after that. Uh, defensive end David Abiara um, was a kid who visited in February and um, I think was maybe potentially close to committing, but just included Notre Dame in a top list rather than committing to the Irish. So that was maybe that's a guy that after he sits on it for a few weeks decides, you know what, I actually I think I'm ready to commit. But I, I do think that it will be waiting until um, mid mid March until Notre Dame gets another commitment. Next question is from Dave Simono at dsimono66. Are you looking forward to the Shamrock game in Green Bay? Might you make it a, an extended visit, maybe the Packer Hall of Fame, Titletown, and Hinterland Brewing, he suggested potentially. Um, I am looking forward to Lambeau Field. Uh, people asked me for years what was the venue I thought Notre Dame should have a Shamrock Series game staged in, and, and uh, my Always my number one choice was Lambeau Field, so this is wonderful for me. As far as an extended stay, you know, I think people think that we have a lot more free time than we do. <laughs> well, we're not even going to be able to stay in Green Bay, so yeah. I think we're probably going to be staying in Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're going to probably be staying at Milwaukee unless we stay at Aaron Rodgers' house. Um, so it's just it just doesn't work out that way. You just don't have spare time during the season unless it's during a bye week and even then it's just busier than you think it's 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 a marathon i'm not saying it's a bad thing it's just you don't you don't have the sightseeing time that you think no yeah the the one time i usually get to see do a little bit more sightseeing is that last game um mm-hmm. uh, at in the end of november after thanksgiving i'm out in california usually have a little bit more free time out there um but yeah it's um, personally, as a Bears fan, I, I will enjoy going to Lambeau Field. I think it's cool, but I, I'm glad that the Packers didn't win the Super Bowl this past year. We'd be going up to Lambeau fresh off a Packers Super Bowl win, but um, I, I think it'll be fun, and I think uh, um, I'm interested to see certainly that game because I think that's a, it's going to tell us a lot about what Notre Dame um, uh, can do next season. Next question is from Case at Irish Case 5 A lot of schools and organizations do their due diligence on hiring background checks, that being said, is the University of Notre Dame more thorough than the CIA? Well, I don't know that they're more thorough, but they certainly take their time with it. <laughs> um, and the reason they do it is because of the George O'Leary thing. I mean, they feel like they can never have that second strike. right? And so they're going to be more diligent than anybody else at it. And I guess taking the time also – gives the illusion that you're being diligent because it certainly seems like you could do some of this like with Mickens. He was Mike Mickens. He was making up his mind for about a week Mm -hmm. after he got interviewed. And so you could have probably gotten some of this done at that point. Yeah. And we don't believe that we're going to be able to actually even talk to these new coaches. So I wonder how much of it is a lack of urgency on Notre Dame's end too, or they're, if we're not if we're not going to make these guys available for the reporters in any way, then um, why does it matter when we announce the the, the coaches or not? If, if they're already on campus and doing work, um, I think it's just a matter of when they 
feel like they they want to tell us about it i don't know it's it's certainly a weird thing to to cover and certainly uh it's kind of funny how these uh, assistant coaches and hires happen and then i didn't get, we didn't get any questions about either these coaches specifically uh, when i asked for questions this week so i think it i think some of the co- we coaching did so hires good job in our yeah reporting. maybe it, it feel like it almost loses steam because of the way that notre dame doesn't necessarily come out and announce those guys or make them uh, publicly available. Um, we didn't get a chance to talk to Lance Taylor until we actually did a story for our magazine on him last year. So um, this isn't uh, a new development at Notre Dame, but something we are growing used to. Last one we have is from our old pal Mike Farrell at Mike Farrell. If you could go on a hot air balloon ride with any Notre Dame football player, past or present, who are you going with and why? I gave one past and one present, and I tried not to overthink Look at you it. you doing the extra credit. Um, past, I went with Lewis next just because he's, <laughs> he's be a good time. <laughs> he he's just the most fun person that I've talked to. We uh-huh. hit it off great, and I know that we would have fun doing anything. And for present, I said Kevin Austin because we'd probably be up there for a while, and I would want to know what he did to kind of change his trajectory mm-hmm. you know what what was the light bulb moment for him and uh, you know how he thinks he can sustain it so that would be he probably wouldn't enjoy that because i'd be grilling him about <laughs> and is stuff. that is that anticipating the lack of access we may get to him exactly in the, in the, immediate the only place i get to interview him is in a hot air balloon <laughs> so uh, kind of related to that that was where i went with my answer um, well, first, how long is a hot air balloon ride? I don't. I have no sense of how long. I, that could, I would think an hour. Out. Yeah, I, I don't know. And or do, until it runs out of air. Yeah. <laughs> but my answer is Manti Teo uh-huh. because you would have him in a one-on-one situation where he could tell you everything that happened. Granted, he wouldn't necessarily have to tell you, but he couldn't go anywhere. He'd be stuck in a hot air balloon with you. Um, so I would be interested to talk to Manti Teo about everything that went down with all the Lenake Kua stuff and. <laughs> His regrets, if he ever, when he realized things were going wrong, and and uh, just get any answers to that scenario that, that I could get from Manti Teo. And if he didn't want to talk about it, it was going to be a long hot <laughs> air balloon ride. It could be a long, awkward hot air balloon ride, but it would be worth it, I think. All right, that's it for this episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Leave us a review or rating if you like what you hear. The Pot of Gold podcast is brought to you by Zaxby's, the home of handmade-to-order chicken, salads, and more than a dozen mild-to-wild sauces. Stop by your neighborhood Zaxby's today. And Tire Rack, the way tire buying should be. We'll be heading down to the NFL Combine in Indianapolis next week, which will probably prevent us from recording a podcast, but we should be back the following week as the Irish start up spring football in early March. Until then, stick with IndieInsider.com for all your off-season coverage of Notre Dame football.